You should know that the book that's in your hand, either in digital form or old-fashioned pages bound together by glue in a book, a book, children, a book, it is complicated. On the one hand, I want to affirm the simplicity of the Bible. I want to say that the truth of the Bible is what theologians call perspicuous, which means that with the Spirit's help, you can open the Bible, you can read the Bible, and you can understand all that's necessary for life and salvation and godliness in your Bible. You don't need a priest to teach you or to mediate for you, although the Bible does give the church pastors and teachers for a good reason. You and the Holy Spirit sitting in a room together with your open Bible is not all you need to be able to understand God's truth. You don't need church tradition to determine for you the meaning of the Bible. Although, if the way you interpret the Bible is different than the way Christians have interpreted the Bible for 2,000 years, you should probably pause. The Bible is, in one sense, a very simple book. But on the other hand, the Bible is anything but simple. It is, in the first instance, the story of the entire universe. From before the foundation of the world till eternity future, it's the story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. It's the story of heaven and hell, of an infinite God who has, is as far away from being understood by us as the furthest galaxy, and then some. The Bible is an ancient book, composed by 66 authors over the course of several thousands of years. And this ancient book is the result of God choosing to work in space and time, in human history to reveal himself, to save us. And he did so several thousands of years before anyone in this room was ever born. The Bible is a book full of history that takes place in cultures largely different than our own. And it was communicated in languages that are not our own. As a matter of fact, in languages that are oftentimes not spoken anywhere. The Bible deals with matters of man's heart. And on the one hand, we can say that that is not all that complicated. But on the other hand, we must say that the, the human heart is as complex as the one whose image that heart was made after. And so it shouldn't surprise us as finite creatures living in our little corner in time, in our little culture, in our little space in the world, with our limited vantage points, with the sin that still reigns in our mortal bodies, with the logical thinking that's still tainted by the effects of the fall in this world, that as we sometimes open up our Bibles, we have a hard time understanding it. If you don't have a hard time understanding some of the things in your Bible, that's Really good. I'm really, I'm really happy for you. I'm also a little concerned. I wonder if maybe you're not reading your Bible carefully enough. The Bible is full of tension. It's full of apparent paradox and tiffanies that the brightest minds throughout all of human history, since the beginning, it was, since the first time it was written down, have been trying to make sense of. Hard texts are in our Bible, I believe, for one reason, to humble us. We are not God. Only God can fully understand God's Word. If a Bible written by God could be fully understood by us, we would be greater than the Bible. 
the Bible would be less than us, and it would not be inspired by the God of the universe. And also, if we could perfectly understand the Bible, there would be no opportunity for humility and discussion and unity. Unity is not displayed when we perfectly agree on every little jot and tittle. Unity is when we show unity in the face of differing opinions. Today's text is certainly that. It's an opportunity for discussion, unity, and humility. Because we're talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the unpardonable sin. Untold amounts of ink have been spilt over this particular subject. The doctrine of the unforgivable sin. And there are two main points that I want us to take away from today. I want us to talk about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not. What blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, basically. And then after that I have some additional notes on things that we should take away from the text and maybe how we should apply this to our lives. But before we get into today's sermon, I want to take a moment to touch on something regarding the nature of today's sermon. You see, a sermon, as we learned from previous places in Mark, is the proclamation. Preaching is proclamation. We are exalting the truth of God. We are proclaiming the fullness of the gospel. And a sermon should be markedly different than a Sunday school experience or what a seminary student might experience in his classroom. Nevertheless, if we're going to be careful with God's Word and if we're going to deal with the text as it comes to us, there are times where a sermon may feel a little more intellectual than emotional. And I want to encourage you not to turn your brains off this morning. I want to encourage you if you're not being as emotionally stimulated as you might otherwise be from a different text or even being preached by a different pastor, I want to encourage you to not stop thinking with me this morning. Primarily, that's what we're doing. We're coming together to think rightly about God. And today's text requires a little bit of extra effort in that direction. So, let me pray and read and we will get started. Father, we need you to be with us this morning by the power of your Spirit to help us understand the sin of blasphemy against your spirit. Give us your truth. Your truth is our life. Amen. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Excuse me, starting in verse 22, it reads, And the scribes who have come down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Point one. What blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not... Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not 
saying something simply negative against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not simply saying something negative against the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time, off-the-cuff comment about the Holy Spirit that immediately and finally separates you from the eternal love and grace of God. There was a challenge on the internet a couple years ago. This was before doing challenges on the internet was popular, way before the ice bucket challenge. And it was a bunch of sad, lonely, angry atheists on the internet. And it was called the Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit Challenge. And what these guys and their fedoras and their patchy beards would do, recording this video in their mom's basement, is they would say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then they would record it and they would submit that video to the internet. And everyone would post the same video. And it was, it was just a bunch of blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Such a comment was supposed to be their way of saying, I definitely don't believe in Christianity. But even if there was a slight chance that Christianity were true, I want to permanently separate myself from God's grace. Such activity is certainly satanic. But I doubt that those comments accomplished what those atheists thought that it would accomplish. As a matter of fact, I'm hopeful that God, to display His glory and to make those atheists look foolish, has come down and sovereignly broken some of their hearts and saved them, that they might see the foolishness of their own intellect. As typical of most, most atheists, their ability to read, understand, and interpret the Bible is very skewed. It's very limited. The Bible is clear. We are not saved by works. There is no one deed, no one terrible deed, that can separate us from the love of God. <laughs> Sorry, cute kids got me distracted. All right. Uh, John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in the Son... Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not whoever believes in Him, except those who have done a few other really bad things. John 3.16 does not say whoever believes in Him, except for you if you've done a really bad thing. Ephesians 2 does not say that we are saved by grace through faith, unless we have said something terrible against the Holy Spirit. From pedophilia to saying something blasphemous about God, there is no sin, no one particular sin that we can commit that will keep us shut out of heaven forever. If there were, if there were a sin that could keep us shut out of heaven, that could permanently separate us from the love and grace of God, then salvation would not be by grace alone through faith alone. It would in some way be by works. Virtually every commentator on this passage notes that the words from verse 22 were saying are in the progressive voice. Let's look at verse 22 real quick. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, were saying. Now, if you're not a grammar nerd and you don't know what progressive voice means, it means that this was an ongoing action. This was an ongoing action by the scribes. It does not mean that they were kind of huddled up in a group and they were saying something about Jesus on one occasion. It does not mean that they had an off-the-cuff comment. It means that they were in the perpetual act of saying these things about Jesus Christ. It was a pattern of speech. Now, as you read the Gospels, 
you might imagine that maybe the scribes and Jesus and some other people were kind of all just sitting in one place and the scribes said something negative about Jesus and Jesus then responds to them. But that's not what we see here. We see that the scribes were going around perpetually saying something about Jesus. In verse 23 it says, And he called them to him when he responded to their accusations. You see, the scribes had come down from Jerusalem. They had heard about Jesus. His fame was spreading. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, people were coming from upwards of 150 miles away. Jesus' fame is spreading to the point where it's really making the religious leaders nervous. And so the scribes come down from Jerusalem to confront Jesus, who's basically claiming to be God. And from synagogue to street corner, everywhere they go, they are maligning Jesus Christ. They are attacking him. Now, what were they saying about Jesus Christ? What were the vibrations of the gossip that Jesus picks up on? Well, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to be exact. But what's really interesting here is that the scribes never said anything about the Holy Spirit. As you recall from verse 22, let's just read it together. Verse 22, one more time. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, that's Jesus Christ, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. They weren't saying anything about the Holy Spirit. They were saying something about Jesus. Since Jesus' baptism until the verses where we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has been going around doing the work of God, proclaiming the gospel, healing people of their diseases, ridding them of unclean spirits and demons, restoring the image of God, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. All by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the scribes from Jerusalem, when they catch wind of what's been happening, when they recognize the authority and the power of Jesus being expressed here in these mighty deeds and wonders, they do not respond with appropriate praise. They respond by attacking Him with accusations and slander. But it doesn't seem like they're actually slandering the Spirit. It seems like they're slandering Jesus. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I think it's because Jesus understands the scribes to be attacking the Spirit because they're attacking the source of His authority. They're attacking the source of His power. They're seeing Jesus preach powerfully. People are being saved. Demons are being cast out. Disease is being healed. All of it is being done by the power of the Spirit of God. And when the scribes look at that power being clearly expressed through Jesus Christ, they cannot deny it. So they don't deny it. They lie about it. They subvert it. They say, this is not the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Satan. And that leads us to our second point. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in a concise definition, and each one of these words is intentional. If you're a note taker, I'm going to say it slowly for you. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the perpetual attribution of the power of God 
being worked in the ministry of Christ to the power of Satan, which evidences a hard heart towards the Spirit of God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the perpetual attribution of the power of God being worked in the ministry of Christ to the power of Satan, which is evidencing or making plain the reality that one's heart is hard towards the Spirit of God. So Jesus is doing all these miracles, doing all these incredible things by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God and the scribes look at it and go, no, that's by the Spirit of Satan, which is showing the world that their hearts are hard towards the Spirit's working. And it's perpetual. It's not a one-time thing. It's a perpetual hardness towards the Spirit of God. In verse 22, the scribes say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. And if you're wondering who Beelzebul is, just keep reading. It says, the prince of demons. That is Satan. Now, one of the things that I love about Jesus is the beautiful complexity of his simplicity. Jesus responds to their arguments not with some really intricate response of logic, Aristotelian means. He just responds by saying, hey guys, how can you win a war if you're killing all of your own soldiers? Look at verse 23. 23 through 25. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, how simple is that logic? Did you guys ever watch The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Maybe this is the wrong audience. But there was a character on there named Jazz. And Jazz would always come over into Uncle Phil's house, and he would always do something that would get him thrown out. Well, after season and season and season of Jazz getting thrown out the front door, finally one day he says something that's disrespectful, and Uncle Phil is about to throw him out, and Jazz goes, no, I got this, don't worry. And he grabs himself by the collar, and the next thing you see is him flying through the, the air out of the front door, as if he threw himself out of the front door. Now, why is that so funny? Well, because we know it's not possible. You can't throw yourself out the front door. It's beautifully simple. Jesus says in verse 23, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. A house divided cannot stand. If the Republicans spend all their time attacking Republicans, they won't be able to defeat the Democrats, or vice versa. If America, during World War II, tries to defeat Germany by killing its own soldiers, I'm feeling pretty confident that the axis of evil is going to win. If Satan is using Jesus to cast out demons, to restore the image of God and people, and to lead people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, how does that make sense strategically? Well, it does not. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's just so crazy it might work? I don't think that that applies here. If Satan really is out to make war on God, and I think he is, and if Satan is really at work to collapse the kingdom of God, and I think he is, and if it's Satan's mission to make sure that every image bearer of God dies in sin and goes to hell, and I think it is, then you can bet he's not going to go about doing that by killing his own people, by attacking his own troop, by attacking his own household or kingdom. Now, we would do well to pause here and think about other situations. 
I've heard people using this logic to try to defend heretical churches. They'll say, well, Jesus said, listen, Satan wouldn't attack his own kingdom. It doesn't make any sense for him to cast out demons. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. And then he says, well, it wouldn't make sense for Satan to put up churches where people are getting saved. Only God would do that. To which I reply, you cannot get saved in a heretical church. Now, maybe there is some instance where God uses a broken clock to get the time right. That'll happen twice a day, as a matter of fact, but it doesn't mean that the clock is working. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines all the time. I'm living proof of that. But a church that preaches a false gospel is not from God. It's not something that God is using to build his own kingdom. It is something that Satan is using to swell the bowels of hell. Heretical churches are leading millions and millions of people to hell. And we are exporting it out of this country into foreign lands by the droves. When I was a missionary in Peru, I spent more time combating people who preach false gospels to the natives than I did trying to convince the natives of the true gospel. God is sovereign over churches that preach false gospels. But you better believe that a church that preaches a false gospel is from hell, not from heaven. So, I think we know what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not. I think we have a good understanding of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But before we walk away feeling super confident about this, I think there's some other things that we should note from the text. Number one, Jesus does not actually say that the scribes have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not say that they are guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verses 29 through 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is guilty of an eternal sin. He does not say, you all have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. It even says in verse 30 that Jesus says this because they were going around saying these things. It's almost as if in response to what they were saying, Jesus is giving them a gracious warning. You are this close. You are in a perpetual state of denying the power of the Spirit. You're saying that the power that's at work in me, which is from God, belongs to Satan, and it's showing me that your heart, your heart is hard. You've got a hard heart. And if you die, you will die in your sins, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, I have no reason to defend the scribes. I'm not pro-scribe. If I think from the text that the scribes were actually guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I would just say that they were guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you this because I think it's probably the most natural way to read the text. This is also practically relevant for those of you who may fear that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you don't, but as you're having spiritual conversations with your coworkers, with fellow students, with people in your family member, which I hope you are doing, Someone may say, oh, I can't be saved as you share the gospel with them. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Well, I think if you have a right understanding of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, you can respond to them. I don't think that you understand what it is. I don't think it's a one-time thing. 
It seems here that these scribes were going around saying blasphemous things, but they were not guilty of the eternal sin. But they were certainly continuing down that road. Another thing to consider here is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in the truest sense, may not be able to be committed today. It may not be possible for us to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to commit the eternal, unpardonable sin today. Jesus is no longer present with us. Not in the same way that he was present with us when he physically walked the earth. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the fullness of the image of God. John 1 tells us that he was God in the flesh. And as the scribes rejected Jesus, they rejected the fullest expression of the power of God standing before them. Hebrews 1 also says, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through our forefathers. From the very beginning of creation, God has been communicating to us. He communicates to us through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God and they convict us of his sin. They display the power and attributes of God. And then after that, he communicates some more and some more through prophets, through written scriptures. But finally, in the fullness of God's kindness, he reveals us to himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is walking around, performing miracles, healing and saving, Jesus is fully communicating the power of God to us. It's the fullest expression. And there has not been a similar expression since Jesus left this earth. I'm not saying that the Spirit is still not alive, active, and present in the church today, or even in your own personal life. What I'm saying is surprisingly less controversial. I'm saying the Spirit of God is not present and active in the same way today that it was present and active in the personal life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So as the scribes rejected the Spirit of God working in their midst, they were looking Jesus Christ in the flesh eyeballs. They were looking Him in the eyeballs, looking at Him in the flesh as they were denying that power. It's not present in the same way as it was then. So I think it's fair to argue that none of us can deny the Spirit of God powerfully working through the ministry of Jesus Christ in the same way that the scribes were denying it, as Jesus Christ was right there before them, as Jesus Christ was walking the earth. I think that point is probably the point where we will need more liberty for discussion and unity, and I'd encourage you to study it for yourself. If I'm right, and if we cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today, then what relevance does this text have for us? Why is it in our Bibles? Well, I think there are two reasons. One, I think it's there because Jesus' response to the scribes is yet another declaration of his divinity. We're going to come back to that. The second reason is that I still think that we can deny the power of God. We can still deny the Spirit's power. We may not deny it in the same way as the scribes denied it as they were looking Jesus Christ in the eyes, but we can still deny the Spirit's power, or we can undermine it, and we can still attribute it to something or someone other than God. A person who rejects the Spirit's work in Christ can receive no forgiveness because they have rejected the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. A person who rejects the Spirit's work in Christ to save us can receive no forgiveness 
because they have rejected the one and only way of forgiveness that God has provided. There is no other way. Sunday school, we were talking about that. If you didn't make it, I encourage you to come next week. Are you worried that you've committed an unpardonable sin? Do you have family members who are worried they may have committed an unpardonable sin? In your evangelistic efforts, have you encountered someone who thinks they may have committed the unpardonable sin? Well, I've got a couple things to help you think through that. Number one, if you are genuinely concerned, I mean really concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't. You probably haven't. The thing that most characterizes this unpardonable sin, this ability to continuously blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit, is a hardness of heart. Your heart is hard towards the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you're being convicted of sin, the Spirit is obviously at work in your lives. You're showing that you have a supple heart, not a hard heart. Now, I'm not saying infallibly that you haven't committed it, but I'm saying usually people with tender hearts who are convicted of sin are not at the same time. Who are, you can't be supple towards your sin and simultaneously be hard towards your sin. The second thing for us to notice here is that it's important to remember that any sin will send us to hell. Any sin will send us to hell. All sin will send us to hell. The tiniest sin will send us to hell. Don't be overly concerned with whether or not you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. As you're trying to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your family, don't be overly concerned whether or not someone has committed the unpardonable sin. You can't know that. But what you can know is that anyone who sins is guilty of... of uh, man, there's so much to say. I'm getting choked. You're guilty of sinning against a perfectly holy and righteous God, and you are automatically deserving of hell and wrath. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit aside. There was a time a couple years ago when everyone was talking about the Illuminati, the Illuminati, and they were saying that all these figures were with the Illuminati. These rappers were uh, with the Illuminati, Jay-Z and Kanye West. <coughs> and they were saying, yeah, he's obviously connected to the power of Satan. And I'm thinking, and they, they would have these YouTube videos, 30-minute explanations of how this symbol in their music video was evidence of the fact that they were connected to the Illuminati. And I just thought, you don't need to do all that, just listen to their music. Listen to the things that they say. They're obviously saying everything that's contrary to God. They hate God. They hate Christ. They love their sin. You don't need to know whether or not they're in the Illuminati. Just listen to 30 seconds of their songs. You know they are guilty and they are deserving of hell. Don't get lost in the sauce. If you understand sin to be a, a list of bad things to avoid, or a bunch of good things to do, you have fundamentally misunderstood sin. James tells us that he who breaks even the tiniest part of the law is guilty of breaking the entire law. Which is the equivalent of saying, if you jaywalk, you're guilty and you deserve to be executed. Well, that doesn't make any sense here because when we sin, and when we break the law in a minor way, we're not sinning against an infinite God. But when we break the law, the law of God, we are sinning against an infinite God. It's an affront to his character. It's an assault on his throne. It's a rebellion against his goodness and glory. And so if we rebel against 
him in even the tiniest way, the thing that we're guilty of is not primarily this minor infraction. It's rebellion against the God who made the rule in the first place. Sin is not primarily about what you do. But what you do reveals what you think and feel about God. What you do or don't do is just an expression of the inner workings of your heart, which the Bible says, if you don't know Christ, is corrupt and dead. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you should know that you stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. From the moment that you thought your first sinful thought, you were guilty. Perhaps you think you're a good person because you haven't raped or killed or stolen anything really big lately. But I promise you, you do not know how to think correctly about sin. And you should know that that is not how God judges sin. Maybe this morning you're feeling really good about yourself because you think, man, if that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I'm nowhere close to committing that sin. I'm okay with God. If you do not know Christ, you are not okay with God. You are not safe. You should know that in Christ, God has made a way for us to escape His wrath, His righteous wrath, and to be forgiven of our sins. You are a sinner if you don't know Christ. And your sin is worse than you could ever imagine. But the beauty of the gospel is that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Jesus Christ is a mighty Savior. And He loves you more than you can know. Right now, right here, through God's preached Word, if you do not know Christ, you should know that the Spirit of God is calling you to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life. That doesn't mean anything to me. You could be as dead as dead can be in sin and have gone to church your entire life. Maybe the Spirit's working this morning through this preaching to convict you of something else if you do belong to Him, to repent of a certain sin, to do better, to strive harder, to chase more after holiness. If that's true, don't resist. Do not resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life this morning. You've been resisting the work of the Holy Spirit your whole life. And every time you resist it, where has it gotten you? Nowhere. If you've been walking with Christ, you know how sweet it is to just let yourself be caught up in the will of God. To let the Holy Spirit fill your sails and be moved by the Spirit of God. Do not resist that, but embrace it for your own good. If you have been in church your whole life, I think you should be more concerned than anyone about whether or not you're resisting the Holy Spirit. The scribes are in more danger here because they should know better. They're scribes. They've memorized the first five books of the Bible. They're known as experts of the book of the law. These religious men, more than anyone, should recognize the Spirit of God when it's powerfully present among them. Instead, they look at the power of God and they call it the power of Satan. They look at the color blue and they call it green. They look the truth right in the face and they call it a lie. Could that be the same of you? Could that be true of you? Is there something that you're refusing to accept even though it's staring you right in the face? 
A sin that you just will not give up? Maybe, maybe you've been in church your whole life and you thought under conviction. Maybe you're not really a Christian and you thought, but I want to be a Christian. But you're afraid to say something. You're afraid to confess that because of fear of man. Put that to death right now. Put that to bed. Do not fear man. Man can do nothing to you. Fear God alone. Stop resisting the Holy Spirit. The good news of the gospel is found in verse 28, which reads, All sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can say that will keep you separate from the love of Christ, except for what comes right after it, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I believe to be the perpetual denial of the power of the Spirit of God. Anyone who stands before the fury of God's glorious righteousness will be radiated with judgment and will be incinerated by His wrath. The only people who can trust that tomorrow will come for them are those who are already on the side of eternity. Resisting the Holy Spirit is one of those things where you always think you're going to have time. Oh, I'll have time, I'll have time. It's like when people want to diet and have a beach body. I'm going to start dieting in February. In February. I'm going to be right by May. Three months. I got it. But then March comes around. I still have time. I still have time. April comes around. Okay, if I diet really hard, I can be okay by summertime. And then summertime comes and you still got your winter body. How many times in our life do we think there's still time, there's still time, and then there's not? Somebody who's here today is gone tomorrow. The person that you love, you thought would be with you forever, is gone. A dad with a wife and three children wakes up one morning to cook Saturday morning breakfast and has an aneurysm and dies in his bedroom. A young aspiring athlete thinks he's going to make it to become a millionaire. He's going to get everything he's ever wanted or needed in life. And then he gets caught sideways by a baseball. It hits him in the jugular, separates the artery, and he dies. There is not time. The only place where there will be time is eternity. And if you make it then, if you make it to eternity without having trusted in the work of Christ, without having given in to the work of Holy Spirit, it will be too late. So do not resist. Finally, and perhaps most strikingly, we should return to what I said earlier and note the way that Jesus understands his own identity. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, Jesus here sees himself as the one who's capable of binding the strong man. Satan is the strong man. He currently resides in the house. And Jesus' point is simple. You have to overpower the strong man before you can rob him. And just like a kingdom divided can't stand and a house divided can't stand, so too a man is not capable of binding himself. Jesus is saying, yeah, guys, you know that someone has to be bound before they can be conquered. And Satan is not binding himself. So if Satan isn't binding himself, then who is binding him? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Who has the power to bind Satan? Do you have the power? 
I should think not. If you think that you do have the power, you are gravely mistaken. In the book of Jude, we see that Michael the archangel doesn't even feel like he is sufficiently competent to go to war with Satan. So rather than rebuking Satan, he says, the Lord rebuke you. If Michael the archangel enlists God to do the work of battling Satan, brother and sister, you should not feel that you are competent to battle him yourself. You should not feel like you are the one who has the competence to bind Satan. Only God can bind Satan. And as we close, I want us to consider the way week after week after week we have been seeing in the Gospel of Mark the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I want to encourage you this afternoon to just go back. It's only three chapters. Just go back and read through Mark chapters 1 through 3. Have some of the sermons that have been preached fresh in your mind. And just note the many and sundry ways that God is showing us the identity of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. In closing, I want to share with you one quote on the Holy Spirit that I think is really helpful. Uh, excuse me, one quote on the, on the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think this is really helpful, and uh, I'll have copies of it if anybody wants one. Henry Alford, commenting on the unforgivable sin, says this, It is not a particular species of sin which is here condemned. Like, oh, I have done that one thing. It is a definite act showing a state of sin, and that state a willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. And this as shown by its fruit, which is blasphemy. The declaration and substance of what the New Testament often says. Let me pray. Father, I pray that every member of this church would have a heart that is supple to your spirit. We need much grace to do that. Our hearts are prone to go cold. Our hearts are prone to be seared. Our hearts are prone to be filled with bitterness. And so I pray that you would give us the grace to combat those things by the power of your will. Amen.